0: Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a big fan of storytelling, and during the podcast, I'll be sharing real human stories about migrant and seasonal farmworkers and the work being done on their behalf. During this week's episode, I'm featuring a Facebook Live event from the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs, or AFOP. In 2020, several leaders from the nonprofit farming community joined AFOP to speak about their work lifting up black and brown voices in agriculture and combating the racism that is endemic to our food system, as well as the additional challenges brought on by COVID-19. Guest speakers include Jillian Heshaw, founder of Farms and author of the book, Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid, as well as Larissa Jacobson, co-executive director Partnerships director and former farm manager of Soul Fire Farms. Now, let's get started.
1: In the Fields campaign for the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs. That's a mouthful, but um, if you all have been following us, you know who we are. Um, we AFOP is an association of 52 member organizations all across the country, including Puerto Rico. And we all work for the good of farm workers by making sure that they have life-sustaining, family-sustaining jobs. Um, we are here today for our Live Thursday broadcast, as usual. Um, and we have two special guests on the phone. Unfortunately, the video is not working again today. Um, it's just part of the um, the way things go these days with the uh, high load and high demand for, for video streaming services. So. Um, before I introduce them, I just want to let you all know, as I did last week, that our contest is going on right now for children in the fields. Um, the link, I think, is on the screen, afop.org CIF. Please visit that link if you know anyone who is a child of Margaret and Seasonal Farmworker between the ages of 10 and 18 years old. Um, this contest is for them. They can send us a piece of art or an essay um, about their experiences in the fields. Um, so please visit the website for the for the instructions for that. Um, we also want to just send out a, a thank you to everyone who has been participating in these broadcasts. This is our fifth one um, on COVID-19. We're just trying to keep our fingers to the pulse of the farm community during this really stressful time. And to do that, we're inviting guests every week to talk about um, their efforts and, and the situation on the ground for them. Um, we hope everyone can join us It's every week at this time on this page. Um, if you're interested in, get, interested in getting our announcements, just send me a message. Um, send us a, a message on Facebook, we'll add your email. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce our guests on the phone. We have Jillian Hyshaw, who is an um, innovative strategist, founder, and attorney in the areas of agriculture, food systems, and asset protection. She was recently recognized by the Cliff Bar Company as a food industry change maker. She's only one of three black women in the world with a, an LLM in agricultural law, and she has nearly 15 years of local, state, federal fellowship and nonprofit experience. Um, she's the author of Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid. And then we have Larissa Jacobson, who is the co-executive director, partnerships director, and former farm manager of Soul Fire Farm. And that's a nonprofit, black, indigenous, and people of color centered community farm committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system. With over 20 years of experience in farming, community health, agroecology, and learning programs, Larissa's current work seeks to reclaim black and brown people's connection with the land. Um, So, without further ado, welcome Larissa and Jillian. Thank thank (laughs) Um, Jillian, I have your photo up here on the screen first, so um, why don't I start with you, and can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Farms? Yes, so I've been
2: working in the area of environmental ag since 1999, and I started Farms in the fall of 2013, we have three different uh, program areas. One, of course, is the legal services, where we provide pro bono or low cost um, legal services to farmers, particularly aging farmers. And that focuses on civil rights, um, state planning, asset protection, elder care, things of that nature. The second thing is our food bank program. Where I fundraise and pay the farmers for their produce, and then it's donated. Over the past six and a half years, we've donated nearly 500,000 pounds of fresh produce uh, through our food bank partners. And then, of course, our third um, initiative is our emergency fund. It initially was a scholarship fund for children of family farms majoring in ag science at Tuskegee. But um, it was converted a year and a
1: half ago through um, an emergency fund, and that definitely uh, been busy the past month. I can imagine. Um, Larissa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at Soulfire Farms?
2: Mm-hmm. So I've been with Soulfire since 2016. And as you said, we're a Black, Indigenous, and People of Colour-centred farm, and we focus on the issue of racism in the food system. We recognize that racism was built and woven right into the food system from its origins in this country, starting with the theft of land from Indigenous people, and then again from Black farmers and other people of colour, through government discrimination, through racialized violence, um, attempted genocide, forced migration, um, land theft. And then we also recognize that that has led to a condition now where 98% of the rural land in this country is owned by white farmers and landowners. Um, the second thing that we focus on is the theft of labor in this country, and so the oppression of farm workers beginning with slavery, stolen labor, kidnapping people to bring them to this country to build the food system, and then moving on to sharecropping and convict leasing, and now with the with guest worker programs. Like formerly the Bracero Program, and now H2A, and not affording farm workers the same legal protection as other workers. So recognizing that 85% of our food in this country is grown by people of color who don't enjoy these labor protections, that 80% of farm workers are Latinx, while only 3% of farm managers are Latinx. Um, Thinking about all those things, we focus on farmer training programs for black and brown farmers seeking to reclaim relationship with land that has maybe been disrupted by slavery genocide forced migration land theft Um, we also do solidarity sharing of the abundance from the land both through partnerships with the original inhabitants of the land who are the stockbridge muncie mohican nation now in wisconsin Um, We share seeds, we share proceeds from seeds, and then we also have partnerships in Albany and Troy, New York, where we're sharing um, fruits, herbal medicine, eggs, and meat from the land with people who have been impacted by state violence, such as mass incarceration, um, refugee status, forced migration. And then finally, we focus on policy change and national and regional coalitions and solidarity work with international partners. And the main focus of our policy work is um, secure land tenure for Black and Brown farmers, leadership pathways for farm workers, and then reparations and land rematriation, recognizing
1: this history of stolen land and stolen labor. That is a lot. You all must be very busy, and it's really important work. Um, That's why we invited both of you um, to talk with us today because um, this is awesome, what you're both doing. Um, And we can imagine the current situation with uh, the coronavirus is not making your work any easier. It's probably the opposite. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Jillian, how about you go ahead and, and talk about what the pandemic has meant for you and for your clients so far? I only work in rural communities,
2: and it's definitely been um, a burden, an added burden, because before the pandemic, of course, rural communities, of course, rural communities don't receive a lot of resources. They don't have proper infrastructure, so uh, the pandemic has just added additional stress um, onto what they were previously dealing with. Um, the past month, I've been purchasing seed and fertilizer in bulk for groups of different farmers that I've worked with um, for nearly 10 years. So farmers in Texas, Florida, Mississippi, uh, North and and South Carolina, uh, we've purchased seed and fertilizer for so that they can have it um, up until the beginning of 2021 and still grow and and have a market. Uh, Also, I've been distributing emergency financial assistance from farmers, small farmers uh, in Hawaii, to uh, dairy in the Northeast, to of course the Southeast, all over. And those stipends have helped with um, utility bills, uh, mostly along with um just everyday assistance a lot of the farmers again we primarily uh, focus on aging a lot of the farmers um, cancer treatments have been stopped they don't have money for medication or gas to get to the Walmart which is 20 miles away to get the medication so um, those resources have been utilized for that. Also, for labor costs, there's, of course, the shortage of labor. Um, and yeah, so that that has been the primary um, response. We also, I've been working in Haiti off and on since 2015. Before COVID, we purchased a massive amount of rights for our partners in Central Haiti, which is been sustaining them, um, fortunately, through this crisis. But um, two days ago, yesterday, uh, a tornado hit uh, South Carolina. So, been on the phone uh, the past two days, providing financial assistance to farmers whose house is just, just you know, no longer
1: there, and whose cows, and you know, were swept up in the tornado. So they definitely need immediate assistance, and we have been providing uh, financial support there as well. Wow. Yeah, I've been hearing about the tornadoes, but to hear about someone who has been personally impacted like that, um, I mean, did they ever find their cows again? I can't imagine cows being just picked up by the wind like that.
2: No. I originally from Kansas City, so definitely used to tornado since I'm in Tornado
1: Alley at home, but no, you say they're no longer available. Yeah, it's nothing neat like it being picked up and dropped down again. (laughs) Um, Yes, thank you for um, telling us, um, sharing what's happening. Larisa, how about you? What has been the impact of COVID-19 for Soulfire Fire Farm and its programs?
2: So there's definitely been a huge impact on our community, our extended family, our network of black and brown farmers, because many of the people that we are in relationship with and working with are small-scale farmers or they are folks who are aspiring farmers who are seeking land and seeking connections with resources and further training so all of that has impacted those farmers and aspiring land stewards Um, it's there are financial issues there's issues with finding markets for products right now um there's basic needs issues with housing and loss of income and child care and health care and all of that um, and so in response to what was really an outcry and a lot of questions about how to connect during this time and how to continue to access resources and participate in these mutual aid networks that are so beautiful that are forming all over the country um, we started a series of online community skill shares for Black and Brown farmers and land stewards, and those are virtual skill shares where we have one to two speakers each time who are focusing on either grant and loan programs, relief programs, or the basics of transmission, or. Um, labor and worker considerations on farms or food sovereignty projects during that time and even just spiritual traditions or black Indigenous spiritual traditions that can ground us and give us some breath and relief from anxiety during this time when so many mental and emotional health issues are definitely coming up so that's one thing that we've then in response, those were twice a week, and now we've moved them to every other week on Sunday evenings. And we have um, anywhere from 75 to 200 people attending those at a time, and there's an open forum for sharing. And in addition to that, what something else that arose out of that was a food and land sovereignty resource list for BIPOC farmers, Black indigenous people of color farmers, and that has hundreds of resources on it, to support BIPOC farmers in navigating the pandemic and the unique needs that are coming up in this time, but also recognizing that hopefully for all of us, there will be a time after this when the, the needs are still there and the resources are still there. So we, we know that even before this time, our black and brown communities were facing food apartheid where it was hard to access um, fresh, affordable, culturally relevant sustainably grown food um, in our neighborhoods Um, You see that in predominantly white neighborhoods they're four times more likely to have a supermarket where there's fresh food available and that has not changed during the pandemic and it will continue to be unfortunately after the pandemic we also see that we're seeing these really striking and stark statistics now about how uh, black individuals and families and other people of color are being more affected by the severity of COVID-19 because of environmental racism and pollution in neighborhoods and housing issues and shared housing and lack of access to health care and loss of income and discriminatory treatment in health care. And so a lot of these issues are coming up for the people in our community too, in our extended family, and thinking through how can we access supports for the challenges that are coming up but also thinking about longer term policy change and structural solutions to these problems that have existed before the pandemic and are just being heightened now um, and so finally two other ways or three other ways that we've responded we've had to cancel a lot of our own programs on the farm unfortunately because of social distancing and the way that we're hoping to Um, move up and do more for our immediate local community in albany and troy is through our program called soul fire in the city we're building home and community provisioning gardens for folks um, supplying seeds and seedlings and technical support and we're there for problem solving and to help gardeners get started and the idea of these gardens is really self-determination for communities, cooperatives, food sovereignty, um, not having to rely as much or on these external food sources that might not be there, taking a little bit of burden of the loss of income off and providing a little bit of extra food security for families and communities, so that's one other way. And then two more resources that we're really working on. Um, there's a weekly Q&A by more than 10 black women farmers, that includes trans and non-binary women farmers as well, uh, trans and non-binary black farmers as well, rotating as co-hosts, sharing basic skills to grow your own food and medicine, doing an online Q&A on Facebook Live. And then finally, we're doing a video series where we're uplifting and featuring people who might not usually be featured in videos. So, so-called farm workers, um, one-time farmers who use black and indigenous growing practices and can speak to really the nitty-gritty, hands-on how-to of how do you grow your own food and medicine and other skills might you need for survival and thrival during this time.
1: Survival and thrival, I love it. Um, and uh, for our listeners, I've put all of those resources up on the screen so you can see them as Larissa has mentioned them. Um, all very, very important work. Um, thank you, Larisa. Um, I'll pivot over to Jillian, um, just to give us a, a bit of a snapshot um, on the rural need that, that's happening right now um, and, and how this is maybe being overlooked at this time with the coronavirus.
2: Yes, I mean, I just, I feel as though, again, the rural community, especially rural communities of color, um, are often overlooked, and especially when it comes to access to adequate health care, oftentimes, on average, they have to drive 50-plus miles uh, to even, you know, get to a um, local care, you know, independent care facility that really isn't a fully functioning hospital. And a lot of my, the average age of my clients is 75 to 90. So a lot of my clients don't have the capacity to walk that far, Um, they're disabled. Um, So it's just various physical and of course, mental challenges that my clients go through that they don't receive resources for. And um, I just feel as though that the aging farmer of color is forgotten. They are the most receptive uh, to, this, to the virus. Uh, unfortunately, more elders are passing away um, than, you know, anyone. And those are the people that I'm trying to protect and it's just very challenging when, they're, when they are in a rural area. Some of my clients don't have access to the internet. Uh, if they do, it's very choppy at the moment, of course. So there's challenges with just, you know, simple communication over the phone. Um, in terms of just the aging population, and the farmers of color that are dying. I mean, when we lose an elder and a farmer of color, we're using, we're losing a history. And this virus is just speeding up that loss. You know, you look at the New Yorker magazine article that came out earlier this week, focusing on Albany, Georgia, which I have uh, farmers there and the attendance of two funerals in uh, February has now, you know, now they're a hotspot, uh, unfortunately, for corona infection and death. And they have one hospital there, it's overcapacitated. I think the the number of beds that they have is under um, 100 when the population in Albany is, you know, thousands of people, but it's primarily, you know, a rural farm community, and it's just, you know, even more burdensome than if you drive a few hours up north, you know, to Atlanta, they have more resources there. And so, it's definitely a need, you know, it, I'm getting legal calls now of, People taking advantage of my clients, you know, legally and over the phone. And I focused on elders because my great grandmother, you know, we own the farm in Oklahoma. She entrusted a lawyer to pay the property tax to, but the lawyer pocketed the money and my family's farm was sold and it passed clean sale. So, The reason why I've always focused on aging farmers is also personal. And my last name originates from the Cree tribe in Oklahoma. And it's just things like this, native farmers, black farmers, what I initially started working with. Um, And these are the folks in these rural areas that are not only being taken advantage of you know, health-wise, but now legal. And so uh, it's just very burdensome and overwhelming. And then to top it off, you have, um, you know, natural disaster relief that is now needed, particularly in Mississippi and in South Carolina.
1: Um, For our listeners, I put up the image of Jillian's book, Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid. Um, A lot of what she's talking about is explained in that book. Um, how the medical liens can uh, and end yep. up in the loss of your farm. So um, check that book out if you're interested. Um, but Jillian, one of our listeners just mentioned this, and, and you um, have been very much involved in this from the beginning and before this all happened with the coronavirus. But um, can you talk about your work purchasing food from the small farmers to donate to food pantries? Um, I just shared an article actually on our page this morning about it. And it's, it's put out there as like a feel-good story. Like, oh, you know, they didn't have anywhere else to put this food, so they just gave it away. But is it really that simple, and is it a quick fix like that?
2: Um, no, <laughs> it, it was before this, but now I'm, I'm in the process of buying um, food in California because right now the two states that have the most plentiful amount of produce is California, Arizona, Florida, and uh, some parts of Texas uh, that I'm finding. And so working with my food bank partners, a lot of these food banks are filled to the brink. Uh, farmer, I mean, that's the first place that the farmers went to donate, but they, they can only take so much. And most of these food banks are located, again, in urban sectors, Atlanta, Savannah, Uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and I call them, I say, hey, you know, I have cantaloupe, can you take it? I'll pay for the freight. No, we can't because, you know, we're already full capacity. And then their hours are limited, and the amount that they could do through the drive-through drop-off is limited. And so if it was, you know, regular hours, regular circumstances, the food would move out quicker so it could be replaced, um, you know, more clinically. But that, unfortunately, that isn't the circumstances. And so uh, the rural food banks, the food pantries are what I try to focus on as well. And the right now, the city food banks, they're filled up. They're not taking donations. That's why there's waste. That's why you're, you know, you're seeing farmers dumping milk and, you know, plowing over eggs and lettuce, but the rural food banks, as usual, are empty. <laughs> I mean, they don't have food, and trying to get it through the rural food banks is is, is my challenge
1: at the moment. Um, so, so why is it, it that they can't get there? Is, you know,
2: they can't get them because usually when you have a, like let's say let's just take Atlanta. Usually you have surrounding churches, church pantries that come and pick up in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But when you have Albany, which is four plus hours away, that's just being, you know, decimated because of the coronavirus. That have small food pantries that really don't have the transportation infrastructure. Sending eighteen wheeler truck to Atlanta to get the food, you know, four hours away, and also cover the cost of transportation because freight and you know the the, the miles on that it's gone up. Uh, and so when you don't have even that money. Uh, you can't go and get the food,
1: you know, that simple. Right. And
2: so that, again, it's just part of the challenges when you're working in rural communities that are high in poverty. They don't have the resources um, to move the produce from one part of the state, to the, you know, for their location. And then a large, Sector of these rural communities are, you know, are aging. They're aging populations, and so that makes makes a bit of a difference as well.
1: Yeah, actually, we, we've had some listeners um, asking this, about this exactly, and it sounds like it's just the food's there, but the money to move it around is not. Is that a fair enough uh, summary? Yes. Yeah. So that, yes. Yeah.
2: And so that's what I'm providing. I'm providing the money to move the produce. And so I'm buying lettuce that would have been, you know, wasted in California. I'm buying cantaloupe that would have been wasted. I'm buying things in Indiana, and Georgia, and you know, that that would have gone away. But it's still a challenge um, getting it into the rural food
1: Thanks, the food pantry. Yeah, not not an easy situation. Um, thanks for being that bridge. I know you're busy right now trying to keep that all that moving. Um, let's move on to um, talk some more about racial justice in the food system and racial injustice. Um, I know there's been a lot in the news lately about the racial disparities in regards to the impact of coronavirus in urban areas. Louisa, you touched on that a little bit. Um, do either of you know if that's also happening in rural areas or if you expect that to happen in rural areas? Um, Louisa, you can go first. Um, I've, I've seen
2: statistics. There has, I mean, part of the problem which is a problem in general, is it's, it's hard for people to access data, and especially in rural areas, some of the record keeping, um, it's it's not obtainable. What I've seen is reports that it's, it's really hard to find out the information, but that anecdotally that same pattern is happening in rural areas. And, and Jillian may have heard more um, than I have.
1: Julian, would you like to speak to that?
2: I'm uh, sorry. The question was about racial justice in rural communities. Is
1: the, that correct? The impact of the coronavirus, the the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus on um, on people of color in in urban areas. So far, that has been true. Do you think that's going to also prove true in rural areas, or have you heard anything to the that would? Um, yes. Improve? Yeah.
2: Yes, ma'am. So, I mean, just basically, just reiterating what I've stated before, I mean, you can take, you know, again, Albany, Georgia, as a case study. Um, It's increasing the rate of death even more in that rural community because they don't have multiple hospitals like most cities. Most rural communities, if they do have a hospital, it's usually one. And it's usually limited with bed capacity, ventilator, um, you know, protective gear, and so the rate of death will accelerate. And so, yes, it, it definitely has a dish, disproportionate, you know, of impact. I mean, you think it's bad in cities when it comes to, you know, black and brown. You know, why don't you go drive down the street from Atlanta to Albany? And that's mostly uh, African American community, and um, you know, with only a hundred or so beds, you know, for thousands of people, and uh, it's just the impact is always severe. The impact is always triple a city. That's why Farm Focus is always always rural communities our food bank uh donations we split it we we focus on um, urban and rural communities with our donations but um the impact of rural is is always uh, decimating and i find that not only in the united states but also in in haiti um you know the the impact is it's just been devastating even more so on um, you know third world world country so so yes um, people people are taking advantage unfortunately of this time of distraction they are foreclosing on black farms. you know that you know uh, their attempts they're sending appraisers. To start foreclosures and auctioneers, and so unfortunately, the legal uh, challenges, you know, haven't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you would think that it would calm down for the purpose of simple humanity, but no, it hasn't. And it's just, um, it's just awful. You know what's going on uh, um, as a result you know, of, of this virus and as the result of people still being, you know, discriminatory
1: um during this time. It's maddening. I agree. And um yeah, we um as you as I mentioned to you offline, um AFOP and our partners work with the Latino farm worker community, um all farm workers actually, but a lot of them right now are are very scared because, you know, they're in rural communities and there's even some myths going around that they're immune or, you know, it's not going to come to their communities. Um, and But the fact of just the way they their living spaces are set up, um, a lot of them live multi-generational homes, you know, and packed in together for farm worker housing, migrant housing, and it's just a matter of time. So we're we're beating the drum, you know, trying to raise the alarm before it gets there because it will get there. Um, so yes, it's is. Um, yeah, I mean that's, that's the part that's frustrating is that people think that this won't impact them, but it will. Right. And I, it, I mean, this this
2: virus is real and it's serious, and it's frustrating when I do get calls that people not you know, thinking that I'm being over
1: overzealous, but it's, mm-hmm. people are dying. Right. Yeah, I've already seen reports in the news about people in um, packing plants. And, and I think the raisins, sun-made raisins just had a, a few cases. Um, and if they're working in packing plants, they're all gonna be exposed because they're working very closely together. Um, I think actually we had a question um, come in about that. And I know I usually save questions for the end, but maybe this would be a good time to ask if either of you would know, or have um, an idea about farms of color shutting down because of COVID-19, and if they would have a harder time recovering from this because of the financial burden? I can speak to that a little bit.
2: Um, uh, a lot of the farmers of color that we work with and that um, are, are alumni of our programs or that we're in the network with already have a financial burden so they may have student loans or they may have health care costs or they may have other um, debt from loans to access land. So then when you see this kind of disruption of the markets that we're talking about like people have the product but it's harder to find a way to sell it and knowing that even before this crisis it was harder for black and brown farmers to access markets in general um, there's all kinds of barriers to that it both built into the systems and just a nature of location and transportation and and all of that. Um, thinking about that, that it's already hard to access markets and and get product to people and make a livelihood, make an income. This is only increasing that and multiplying it even more so. Um, so we're definitely hearing stories of of people struggling and trying to find, find support, find capital. It's really hard to find capital or loans that are not predatory. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some relief programs at this time. But just in general, to stay afloat with all that's going on, it's, it's definitely a challenge. It only accentuates exactly. a lot of the systemic issues that were already
1: there. Exactly. Um, and Larissa, since, uh, since you just talked about that, can you also mention some of the um, the policies that you all are, are pushing for to lift up farm workers and their expertise and also to take into account the needs of farm workers and BIPOC farmers?
2: Yeah, sure. So Jillian um, mentioned this issue of folks not having internet, maybe not having access, and so much ha- is happening now online. Like we see, I mean, even I mentioned the community skill shares that are happening online. You see a lot of um, grant programs, relief programs, information spreading and being promoted online. And so we want to really acknowledge that there's a digital divide that not everyone has access to that, that there are different levels of comfort with text, with readability of text, with getting on the internet, with connecting to different platforms, and so one thing that we're doing is really focusing on that intentionally because we created these online skillshares and we wanted to see if there was a desire or a need um, among Spanish speaking farmers, farm workers to participate and to ha- also have these forums um, where there could be sharing of knowledge and resources happening. So we've been making those bilingual. We work with the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, who is really at the cutting edge of language justice work to try to think about how do we make this a multilingual space where everyone is able to. Ju- Platform it might be, like whatever device they have. And so we've been working on kind of really simple, user friendly videos, um, things that can be spread through WhatsApp, like things that could be talked about over phone calls, um, infographics. To describe how you can get connected in this time, like what are the resources to access internet, um, and get connected to these platforms. And, um, and also in those spaces been speaking and are featuring, um, as of May, featuring farm worker voices and ex- experts sharing about their experiences. Um, those will be Spanish first forums with translation for English speakers because often you see that something is in English with, I'm um, sorry, interpretation because often you see that things are offered in English with interpretation the in Spanish and so you have this like tiering of the languages. Mm-hmm. Um, these will be Spanish first um, skill shares. And then in the policy realm, we work with the Heal Food Alliance and the national black food and justice alliance um, and with those organizations and a few other coalitions that we're a part of we focus on policies that advocate for a living wage for farm workers day of rest, health insurance um, workers compensation collective bargaining rights and also what are the pathways for farm workers to become land-owning farmers, running their own businesses, to become owner-operators, what are the supports for that, both within the system, um, legal support, supports around immigration status, and then what are the supports in terms of resources? So what are the training programs that are available? Are they led by people of color? Do they address this trauma and history that is so real? Do they offer strategies for navigating the the food system as it is set up, which is a racist food system? Um, So are they led by people of color? Um, Do they offer connections to land and financial resources? And so within that, I'm part of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, and we are uh, black indigenous people of color that land trust that is focusing on um, land rematriation to indigenous communities and also providing secure land 10 years so 99 year leases for black indigenous and other farmers of color who would like to be on land whether it's for farming or ecosystem regeneration or spiritual and cultural practices having to do with land stewardship Um, and thinking about intergenerational wealth, how does that translate into a a building of secure wealth that can be passed from generation to generation within communities, so both community wealth and intergenerational family wealth. thinking about what are the supports for that within existing financial programs and how do you look at USDA programs and think about how the USDA aggregates all, quote, socially disadvantaged farmers together and that includes um, white women farmers, that black, indigenous, and other people of color farmers all together when the needs can be very different and the statistics can be very different in terms of access to land and access to resources. So advocating for some of those programs to be disaggregated so you can recognize the unique needs of black farmers or indigenous farmers um, who might be seeking no interest loans or might be seeking land. Um, we also have been thinking about what is, what is the realm of knowledge creation and research and, like, dissemination of information and resources look like and who is creating that right now, so thinking about cooperative extension and universities and farm advisors and do those reflect the diversity of this next generation of black and brown farmers? How is the agricultural knowledge being generated, how is the knowledge being generated about how to access resources for farmers who are struggling, um, and how can we have black and brown people in positions of power and knowledge sharing and knowledge creation and innovation that's already happening anyway in our communities? How can we have that happening um, in some of these institutions? Yes, I would like to comment
1: as well. Uh And what, what was the question again? Um, it was, uh, how, are, how are your programs uplifting farm worker expertise and taking into account the needs of, of farm workers of color and and farmers of color um, and black indigenous people of color. Um, and I know we've been up, off uh, uh, maybe a little bit more than we can chew, but yes, please, Julian, speak to that. And then I want also to give you a chance to um, talk about the graphs that you had sent me, so um, go for it. <laughs>
2: Yes, thank you. Um, So I was just wanting to uh, reiterate to the public that the statistic is true. Um, 30,000 acres of Black land ownership is lost in this country per year. That's why the name of the website for farms is 30,000acres.org. And it's it's not on purpose. And I would like to um, refer to the graph. the first picture is 30,000 acres stating the statistics, but then the second graph is showing uh, the number of farmers, particularly uh, principal operators, which is basically the primary owner of, of the farm operation, the number of farmers based on race. And as you can see, there is a start disparity when it comes to um, when it comes to demographics, and these are based on um, USDA statistics, the twenty seventeen census that came out April of last year. Every five years, USDA does their does their annual um, census, and so. This is also reflected. uh, Farms received a NIFA grant in 2015, and we surveyed over 65 different African American farmers in the Southeast. And um, these are just some of the results from that survey and from that um, program. I'm trying to pull it up because
1: I sent you. Was it the crops that you sell the most? A lot.
2: yeah, so the, the number of crops that that, they, that um, farmers of color, particularly black farmers, uh, grow the most are leafy greens and peas and tomatoes. But 95% of our clients are uh, specialty crop farmers. And so a large portion of black farmers' crops are specialty crops or cattle. And, you know, again, that's documented in, in the census. The um the second slide is the food bank donation slide. It's older; it's from twenty seventeen. But um, again, I purchased and donated five thousand pounds of watermelon, and this is just some of the recipients—rural local churches that uh, I purposely donated to, where the the um. Poverty rate is over twenty percent in you know these Mississippi counties and um, small rural towns, and so this program for nearly seven years has worked in getting fresh crops, fresh produce to food insecure rural, high poverty, high unemployment communities. And then also, I just want to focus on um, the COVID photo of our one of our farmers in the southeast. Again, we purchased fertilizer and seeds. And it wasn't just for this one farmer, but it was for multiple farmers um, in in this in this state in Mississippi. And then also the book title. So I wrote don't bet the farm out of necessity because A lot of my farmers, they don't realize that when they go into the nursing home and they owe an outstanding debt to the nursing home, the nursing home and these long-term care facilities can put a lien on your home and on your land. And I know this from personal experience in my family. And so it's something to take into consideration when we're right now, we're dealing with long-term care facilities. And the rate of death is very high in the aging population. Please make sure that you look at your state law when it comes to these Medicaid liens, because they will take advantage. And these small nursing homes, they have the federal authority under HHS to put a lien and force the sale of your land or your house. Now. There's certain states, like Florida, for example, you, it's exempt, 160 acres plus the home that is exempt. And I'm, now I'm on that with my third edition, I've added the four corner states, which includes now 19 states, but we need to do proper estate planning to protect generational land, generational wealth. And so it's definitely essential uh, to Make sure that you know your state laws when it comes to um, your estate planning and long-term care facilities. And especially now, because people really aren't paying attention. They're, you know, they're, they're constantly in distress, trying to keep things afloat, and that's when you know certain institutions, uh, specifically
1: long-term care facilities, will take advantage um you know of this stressful situation. Thank you, Jillian. Um, I'm so very happy to have you both on. We have a few minutes left um before I think my my conference call will cut you off. Um and I want to mention um that oh yeah one more question was that is the, is COVID nineteen exacerbating pre-existing health, financial, and racial issues in rural areas of color and small farms of color. I think you've already spoken to that a little bit, Jillian, but I assume the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there were some comments also from folks that, um, what what do you think about Meals on Wheels as a part of the solution to um, excess food that needs to be moved to places of need?
2: Well, I think that it's, it's good again, especially in rural communities, but people, you know, you need to have not daily, but to me, uh, two hour um, temperature check to make sure that, uh, you know, they're, they are not sick or, you know, what have you, because mostly, you know, the elderly receive and the disabled receive you know these these meals. They're the recipients of the meals, and that's the most vulnerable population. And so, there needs to be constant monitoring of the workers when it comes to interaction, um, you know, with the, with the vulnerable vulnerable population, especially in rural communities when the lack of health uh, care is dismal, basically.
1: Um, great. Thank you for answering that. Um, I think those are all our questions. I want to um, mention again that we have Jillian Hyshaw on. who ha- She's uh, a lawyer and author of the book, Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid, and she um, is doing a lot of important work moving food to places that need it and purchase- purchasing it from farmers who can't sell it. Um, and we also have Louisa Jacobson, who is the co-executive director of Soulfire Farm And they do a lot of really important work um, raising up the voices of people of color who are farmers and farm workers. And, Larissa, a lot of what you said was resonating very much with me on the the policies that we need to enact to protect um, farm workers, especially at this time with, um, you know, they're being expected to work overtime, but they're not being paid for it. You know, they don't get unemployment insurance and they're not getting the checks that everyone else is getting because a lot of them are undocumented. And it's just so unfair. I think the governor of California just passed a law that, that will send the, um, some relief to undocumented workers, which is awesome, but it's not happening in other states. So I think, um, is, I think we'll end on a more positive note. I know this is a lot of um, not so good news. So if both of you could answer a question about what inspires you most in your day to day, whoever wants to go first.
2: Well, what inspires me most is helping clients like my great-grandmother as a lawyer that, you know, she got taken advantage of by a white lawyer, but the past 15 years since law school, but even undergrad since the 90s, just helping people like my grandparents and my great-grandmother save land that my family has lost. It always motivates me, and it keeps me resilient and aggressive in doing this work.
1: Great, thank you, Jillian. How about you, Louisa?
2: Um, I just like Jillian had spoken to um, how we're losing our elders um, in people of color communities, and with them, we're losing stories and memories. I I feel inspired and I feel hope when I see spaces where elders who have such knowledge and such connection with the land and with the healing of the land can come together with young people and share that knowledge and share memories and share stories and share history and share the pathways and the journeys that its seeds and practices have taken for being in relationship with the land um, and so any space and and we have some of those spaces we see other black and, black and brown led um, farms and food sovereignty organizations creating those spaces to any spaces where young people and elders can come together and really honor the knowledge and the brilliance of elders and also where young people can feel in touch with their elders and with their ancestors too
1: and all the courage and the richness of their ancestors. That's so beautiful. I agree completely. I'm on the phone more regularly these days with my grandmother who's 90, um, and I I value her very much. And I yeah, it's just really awful how um we're losing those folks um daily. So um, on that note, I want to say thank you to both Jillian and Larissa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you all who are listening right now um, are interested in, in their efforts, you saw the resources that we shared. Um, Jillian is at 30,000 Acres on Facebook, and Larissa, I guess, is it, is it just Soul Fire Farm on Facebook, the, the handle? Yes. That's- Soul Fire Farm, S-O-U-L, Fire Farm. Great. Um, So thank you all again for joining us today. And we will be back again next week with special guests. Um, Let's see, I believe we're going to have Norma Flores-Lopez from uh, Justice for for Migrant Women and another guest pending. And we will be talking about um, migrant women and farmworker families through the crisis. So um, join us again next week at 1230. And in the meantime, stay well, stay safe, um, and take care. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank Thanks you. for having
1: me. Thank you. Thank you. Bob. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve. You can now access all episodes of A Passion to Serve along with blog posts on my new website, apassiontoserve.net. I would love to hear your thoughts about the new website, along with comments about the episode or episodes you've been listening to. Until next time.